Let us now read God's Word, and we find the reading this morning in Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. I'm going to make a point at the beginning of the sermon that the context of the text is very important and just generally now understand that the text is found in the last section of the book. The first section sometimes we speak of as the doctrinal section and the last section as the practical section. We're in that what sometimes is called practical section. Romans 15, beginning at verse 1. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And again, he saith, rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, uh, Isaiah saith, there shall be a root of Jesse, And he that shall arise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. Now the God of hope fill you. And the idea is Gentiles. You Romans are Gentiles. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. And nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. I have therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. I'll stop reading there and just point out that the rest of the chapter is mainly Paul's expression of desire to come to meet them personally because he had not yet met them personally. And he says, I first must travel away from you to Jerusalem to bring a collection to Jerusalem. And on my way back to Spain, I'm going to stop over to see you in Italy, in Rome. That's the last part of the chapter. The text this morning is verse 14. A somewhat unstudied verse in a very familiar book. This is the text. I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Let me read it once more. It's unfamiliar to us. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. I have in my classroom at seminary a little gizmo. We may call it a gizmo because no one knows what it is. 
shiny, pointed, hard, and metal. And I put that on my desk as an illustration to the students that if you do not understand the purpose of a thing, it's probably not much profit. If you do not understand this gizmo in its context, this gizmo is pretty much useless. And I use that as an illustration to emphasize to them that there are some texts in the Bible that if you do not know their context, most of the value of that text is lost. And this text is like that. If I would, for example, take that little gizmo in front of my students and explain to them how much it weighs, this little pointed silver metal thing, and how long it is, and the angle of the taper to the point, and the color of it, and what the gears are on it, apparently, and say many true things about it. They'd get to the end of my little speech about this gizmo and say, but what use is that? Again, I say, that's like taking this text apart from its context and trying to explain it. And the context is this. It's in, as I said, the second section of the book of Romans, the second main section. The first is usually called the doctrinal foundation and the second, the practical application. That does an in, uh, injustice to this second practical section. It would be better to say that the first part of the book is an explanation of what Christ has done for us. And the second section, what Christ does in us. Or the first section, an explanation of Christ's redemption of us. And the second section, an explanation of his renewal of us. Or the doctrine of justification in the first section and the doctrine of sanctification in the second section. That makes the second section more important when you realize that this is the teaching of the work of sanctification, conforming us into the image of Christ. There's very little that's more important than that, that God works a work in us to make us more and more look like His Son. That's what's going on in the context. Now, listen to the next step here. God works that work of sanctification in us by His Word that's spoken primarily in the preaching. But here's the point of the text this morning. Also, that Word as it comes out of your mouths. God works His work in us, conforming us to His image by His Word. To use the language of the canons, the promises, the exhortations, the admonitions of His Word are used by Him to work this work of renewal and sanctification in us. Or, to look at the other passage in the canons that speaks to this, grace is conferred by means of admonitions. In both of those passages in the canons is found the word admonition. Now look again at our text. I'm persuaded of you, my brother, and Paul says, that you also are able to admonish one another. And so to go back to the text in its context, Paul is bringing the word of admonition to the church in Rome by which he knows God will sanctify them and more and more renew them in the image of his Son And finally comes to a point and says, I'm going to stop here. Though I could go on, I'm going to stop here because I know that you are able to admonish one another. That is, from my mouth as an ordained minister, Paul is saying, God primarily works to sanctify you. That's the importance of the preaching of the gospel. But there's also this truth. That all of you, all of you, are able to do what Paul was doing to the blessing and edification of all the others. 
Read the text again. I'm persuaded of you, my brother, that you are full of knowledge, filled, uh, full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able also to admonish one another. So let me explain that passage now carefully this morning under the theme, every believer's ability to admonish. See, in the first place, the amazing truth that stands behind this ability. And then in the second place, the ad, uh, implied admonition to us that we ought to admonish each other. And then in the third place, the needed confidence for us in that regard. The amazing truth, the edifying calling, and the needed confidence. The amazing truth is very simple. It's a restatement of the text. You, members of the church, are, a, are filled with goodness and full of knowledge. There are three aspects of that statement that all of the members of the church are full of goodness and filled with knowledge. And the first is this, in you is goodness and in you is knowledge. And when Paul says in you is goodness, he doesn't mean to say that from you have come good works. That's a different matter. He could have spoken about their good works and said to them, I saw what you did. But he's not talking about what they did. He's talking about who they are. And who they are is people who have in them goodness. The qualities of goodness. Mercy, kindness, benevolence, a gracious character. He's talking about their nature. And he's explaining to them the kind of people that they are. They have qualities and dispositions that are good. And when he says, in you is knowledge, he's not talking about the kind of knowledge that you young people get when you go to catechism, which knowledge you're able to testify of when you stand before the consistor to make confession of faith and give all the right answers. He's not talking about that kind of knowledge because a non-Christian can have that kind of knowledge. Now that kind of knowledge is important, but the Apostle Paul is talking about the knowledge of faith. The spiritual, intimate knowledge that a child of God has of His Father in Heaven and of His Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His Sanctifier, the Spirit. The kind of intimate knowledge the Bible uses to describe the relationship of a man to a woman that gives her a child. In you, Paul says, to the church is goodness and in you is knowledge. That's amazing. The second aspect of this amazing truth is that the people of God are filled with goodness and full of knowledge. And that's even more amazing. He isn't saying there's a little bit of goodness in you, a little bit of knowledge in you. He says, you're full, full and filled. And to grasp the sense of that teaching, listen to how those words are used in other passages of the Bible. The word in connection with goodness in the text, full of goodness, is a little bit different than the word filled with knowledge, but they're very similar. The word full is used in connection with the wicked man's eyes, full of, of adultery. And the idea is that he has nothing else in view but adultery. Or a drunken man is full of wine so that that wine permeates him and controls him. Or another place that's used to describe an unrighteous man filled with malice and envy and strife and deceit so that you say there's nothing else in him that's positive. But to use the positive, uh, find the positive uses of that word, it's used to describe the net that all night long was thrown on the one side of the boat. Every time they pulled it up was empty. And then after Jesus told them to throw it on the other side of the boat, they pulled it up so full that they could not even get it into the boat or to shore without help. That's the word that's used here. 
The word used for knowledge is a little bit different, but very similar, and now emphasizing the spread of a thing. You think of the incense that's burned in the tabernacle. Imagine lighting a, a, a little bit of incense in this room here. It wouldn't take very long until you couldn't go anywhere in this room without smelling it. That's the word that's used to describe the relationship of knowledge to you. Or you think of the knowledge of Jesus in Jerusalem. The Bible says that you couldn't go anywhere in Jerusalem without hearing about Jesus. The city was filled with the knowledge of Jesus. Or in the third place, when the disciples were in that upper room, and the sound as of a rushing mighty wind came, it filled the room so that you couldn't go anywhere in that room without having heard it. That's the word to describe, and those are the words to describe your relationship to knowledge and goodness. It dominates the people of God. It permeates us. It controls us. It pervades us. It cannot be ignored. And that's amazing too. And the third part of that amazing truth is that all of the people of God are full of goodness and filled with knowledge. Not just a select few of them, but all of them. Paul is speaking to the church at Rome, not the office bearers. Here's a private letter for you. You may know this about you. This is a public letter for every member, and it describes all of them, young and old, men and women, office bearers and not. And the point there is that elders might think that, well, this describes the ministers, but not us. No, you. And the women may say, that may describe my husband or the men, but not us. No, you. And the children may say, well, that may describe mature adults, our parents, but not us. No, you are full of goodness and filled with knowledge. And new Christians might conclude that this may describe mature old Christians, but not us, who just came to the faith. No, you too. Roman Christians, Gentile Christians, new converts to the faith. And what adds to the amazement of that is that this is the assessment of the Apostle Paul. Now think of Paul. Born into a believing family, sent early to Jerusalem to train under the most capable students of Scripture, and then sent to study under the personal tutelage of the Lord Jesus in the wilderness for three years, one-on-one. You can't think of anybody more well-trained than Paul. And yet Paul says to them, you, all of you, are full of goodness and filled with knowledge. That's astounding. It might not be astounding to an Arminian and an astounding statement in an Arminian church because an Arminian says, well, of course, everyone is. We're born that way. We all have natural goodness. But in a Reformed church, to hear that testimony, you, people of God, are full of goodness and filled with knowledge? Are you asking us to deny some fundamental Reformed Doctrines like the doctrine of total depravity? You want us to make this confession when we've always confessed that in us there is no good thing? In fact, Paul, don't we remember you saying that earlier in the book of Romans they perhaps could have said had they met him person to person? And in fact, Paul, didn't you say earliest in the book that natural man is so corrupt that in his mouth is the poison of asps? And then you did confess about yourself, Paul, in chapter 7, that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. How now can you point to us and say, you are full of goodness and filled with knowledge? Well, let's get this straight. And listen very, very carefully, because in these two words, full and filled, is the Reformed faith. And the Reformed faith is there because in those words that are participles, now you need to think about English grammar, and it's important that we study English grammar 
in school, the participle is in such a form that indicates two things. Number one, that what we are now is not what we used to be. Something happened to us to make us what we are now. And in the second place, what happened to us is not what we did to ourselves, but what happened to us by the activity of another. It's the perfect passive participle. Perfect indicating what we are now is not what we used to be. There was a change that happened to us. And passive indicating that we did not make this change in ourselves, someone else did. That's grammar. That's the importance of grammar. That's the importance of having ministers trained in the languages so that they can see that in the Greek language. But you even know that in the English language. Now what happened to us? To make us what we are. We were empty. Nothing in us of goodness and knowledge. And now full and filled with goodness. What we are now is not what we were by our first birth. What happened to us? We were filled. Someone filled us. We didn't fill ourselves. God came to us and put Christ in us so that what we are filled with is Jesus Christ Himself. He's the goodness of God. He's the knowledge of God. And if Christ is in us, the Word now we understand can say you are full of goodness and filled with knowledge because we have Christ in us. To be very clear, in addition to the old man that we yet have, that old man is totally depraved. There is a dimension of us that's corrupt and only corrupt. In addition to that, we have a new man. And with respect to that new man, the Word of God says to you and me, full and filled. You can't read the rest of the New Testament unless you understand that we were dead and are quickened. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. What we have here in this amazing truth is two very important doctrines. Let me review them briefly before we go on to the second point. The first doctrine is the doctrine of the priesthood of believers. The doctrine is the New Testament teaching that whereas in the Old Testament there were only a few who had abilities to be prophets and priests and kings. In the New Testament, all of us have the abilities to prophesy and do priestly work and rule and fight as kings. In the Old Testament, wasn't so. You found just a few prophets in the congregation who were able, because they were filled with knowledge, to speak that knowledge to the edification of others. Think of the prophets, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. The rest of the people of God weren't, couldn't. They were small. In the Old Testament, there were very few priests. Think Aaron, think Samuel. Think a few others who had the right and the ability to take the people of God, as it were, by their hand and lead them into the presence of God by going past the offering that was made for them. You have no right to be in the presence of God except for this sacrifice, but I'm going to bring you to God by making a sacrifice. That's a priest's work. Very few were priests. The rest were very little. And as to kings, very few kings, judges. Think Samson, think David, think the other mighty warriors who on behalf of the people of God fought the good fight, engaged in warfare, and benefited the people of God. Mighty kings. And for the rest, the people of God were very little. And now in the New Testament, prophesied in the Old Testament, all of the people of God are anointed with that anointing so that we're all priests and that's why it's called the priesthood of believers. All believers are priests, but also prophets and 
kings. Now, that was prophesied in the Old Testament in a beautiful prophecy where when Israel first came out of the land of Egypt and Moses was the only prophet, the only prophet who could speak to the benefit of the other people in a powerful way. And when they camped at Mount Sinai, you remember that history, there were all kinds of problems. They had spent 400 years learning the ways of Egypt. And now they came to Moses for counsel. And you can picture a long line snaking away from his tent with people waiting perhaps for days to get counsel from Moses. And Moses complained to God and said, God, I can't do this. So God put his spirit that was on Moses on 70 of the men in Israel so that they also were able to be prophets. Two of those men prophesied out in the camp. Someone saw it, thought it was wrong, reported that to Moses, and this is what Moses said. I wish you all were prophets. And that wish of Moses was fulfilled in the New Testament when the Spirit was poured out and all of the people of God have that ability now to speak the word as prophets. Sometimes we think of the priesthood of believers only as the right that we have to object to something the consistory did and protest or say that we don't agree with what the minister said. And though those are included in the rights that you have as prophets and priests and kings, it's far broader than that. You have the ability to speak and lead people to Christ and be a blessing to them. That's the first important truth here implied in this text. And the second, we've already looked at, what we are now is not what we used to be, which means that when I ask you in catechism, if, the Lord willing, I teach your catechism next year, I probably won't, but I have, and I ask you eighth and ninth grade students, when we get to Lord's Day 3 in the Heidelberg Catechism, and I've done this for 20 years now, as one who teaches in vacant churches, and I always ask to teach Heidelberg Catechism and Essentials. We always come to Lord's Day 3 very quickly. And I ask you 8th and ninth grade students this question. Don't get nervous. Is there anything good in you? You ought to see the scared look in the faces of these children when a professor in the seminary asks them that question, which they realize is loaded with implications. They're scared. Can you do any good? No one dares speak. They all look down. And they ought not be afraid. And if they say yes, and I say, can you show that to me from the Bible? They would go to Romans 15 verse 14 and say, by the grace of God, I'm no longer dead, but alive. And being alive by the Spirit of Christ, I am able to do good. I'm able to do good. This is who we are every member. That's amazing. And then from that amazing truth comes the purpose of Paul in the text to say, now I'm going to stop admonishing you that is teaching you the ways of the Christian life and go on to write another letter, maybe to the Corinthians or the Galatians or the Ephesians, because you now can pick up where I left off. I didn't say everything, Paul says, about the Christian life and sanctification. I'm going to stop here. God gave me a marvelous calling to be a minister to the Gentiles, and I need to do that. Now, here, you do this. You have the ability to admonish, exercise yourselves in that calling. Admonish. That's a word that sometimes scares us too because we think that it means now you better listen. It's what dad and mom do once in a while when the kids are not behaving. They admonish the children or the young people, rebuke them, warn them, threaten them. Now, that word admonish in the Bible does mean that at times, and that's our calling with one another at times, and you need to see that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Old Testament history was written for our admonition. It has that narrow negative meaning, wagging the finger. They committed fornication, you must not. 
They lusted after the onions and leeks in Egypt. You must not. Admonition. Reject the heretic, Paul said to Titus after the first and second admonition. There's a man teaching false doctrine. Warn him. Threaten him to stop. And if he doesn't stop at your admonitions, you put him out. Admonition. The unruly must be warned, Paul says to the Thessalonians. And so in Romans 12 to 16, you may find that kind of admonition, which is a warning, a negative threat. Don't live that way. And so that's our calling too. It is. That's what Jesus taught in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go to him and then there's one word that we translate with four or five, tell him his fault. Tell him his fault is the kind of word that we have in our text. Reprove him, admonish him, warn him, convict him of his sin. That's your calling. And so we need to see that first of all. We, members of the congregation, mustn't sit back and wait for the elders to do that work. Someone's sinning over there. I sure hope the elders are aware of that. No, that's our calling and our responsibility. If a brother sins against you, go to tell him his fault between you and him alone. Convict him of his sin. And if he repents, you've gained him. We need to do that. Do that. Young people, if you have a a friend who's dating and is committed to the one that he or she is dating and yet you see that friend flirting with other boys or girls, then you ought to warn him about that or her. Or you have another friend who is using alcohol in a way that's a sin. You ought to warn him about that. Convict them or If someone is gossiping and we hear that gossip, we ought to go to them and say, you may be doing that. By the grace of God, let's not live that way. But the word that is translated admonish in the text really wouldn't be as useful as it is unless we understand that it has a very broad and positive meaning. Admonish in the sense of encourage and lift up and build and help and bless. And that's how it's used mostly in the New Testament. If we think of Father's Day today, think of Ephesians chapter 6 where fathers are taught not to provoke their children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It doesn't mean spend your life, fathers, warning them. That's included, but there's much more to admonition than that. Think of what Paul says in Colossians when we sing. When we sing, we are teaching and admonishing one another. Now there may be a rebuke or two in the Psalms. Not very many. The rest of the Psalms are full of words of encouragement and blessing that we speak to others when we are singing. Understand this word admonish then is very broad and very positive. And that's the main what you find in the book of Romans, second part, sanctification, renewal, positive words of instruction as to how to live the Christian life. Like you who are strong, bear the infirmities of the weak. And here comes a warning. Don't please yourselves. And then another warning. Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. But be humble. Read Romans 12 to 16 and see all of the words that exhort to joyfulness and hopefulness and peace in Christ. Where Paul is being a prophet to teach, you must too, and a priest to take the hands of the people of God and lead them to God by Jesus, and a king to help the people of God fight the battle of faith in a wicked, wicked, difficult, troubled world. You are able to do that. The words that come from your mouth, God has designed to be a blessing and power for other members. That's amazing too.
The words you speak under the blessing of God have power to help other people. What you know to be true about this pulpit and the word that comes from ministers, what you know to be true about this word is also true about the words you speak. And so now the sermon becomes very practical and I want to remind you and even admonish you. Speak. Shall we start with the elders? That may be surprising, but may I remind the elders that you have the ability to be a blessing to others by the words that you speak. You mustn't say, we don't have a minister. Therefore, we can't help anyone. The people of God are going without assistance. Now, there may be an aspect of assistance that the people of God need through the pastor, but you elders are also able, which implies people of God don't think that when you have troubles, you have two options, go to the pastor and there is none, or go to a professional counselor. You may use a professional counselor if you need in certain circumstances, but your options are first of all this, the elders are called to do exactly what you need done. They will bring you the Word of God, and you must trust that that Word of God is a power to help and to bless you. You elders, when you go to the hospital and visit the dying and the sick, bring the Word and help them. And when you visit the depressed in their home who are so depressed they can't get up off the floor they're curled up under a blanket. They may need some other help too. If they're in that condition, they do. But don't think for a moment that you can't be a great blessing to them, a very important blessing to them. You elders know that the word that you bring to the wayward, and that word is usually this kind of word, a warning, is effective under the providence of God. But your words are useful to help the people of God battle sin. Your kings, elders, lead them to Jesus. Your priests, elders, and teach them about Christ. You are prophets. It's Father's Day, though. I've said that more than a couple of times. Let me emphasize this morning, fathers. When you go home to your family, and at the end of the meal, or at the beginning of the meal, open up the Word of God for devotions, and you come to the end of the reading, don't close the book, but keep it open and act as the prophet that you are. And explain and apply, perhaps by asking questions, looking at words, finding those words in other passages so that you understand the meaning of this passage. You're able, men, fathers. You're full of goodness and you're filled with knowledge. You're able. To be a blessing by your words to your wife and to your children. Don't doubt that. Young people, you're able too. You know a friend who has a burden? Maybe his parents or her parents are divorced. And you try in your mind to put yourself in their position. You can hardly imagine what that would be like. Speak to them. Comfort them, help them. If necessary, once in a while, rebuke them, if necessary. But you must never think, young people, that you aren't able to be a blessing to those who are in distress. You see that special needs member? You're standing in a little circle of your friends, none of whom have special needs. Break that circle down go and minister to them and speak to them, not just on Sunday, but all of the time. You have the ability to do that. If one of your friends needs to be led to God through Jesus Christ, take them by the hand, bring them to Christ in the Word of God, and be a blessing to them. Your prophets, your priests, and your kings, and all of you members, when Bible studies begin again in the fall, Come to those Bible studies and don't hesitate to speak. You don't all need to speak equally, but you all are permitted 
and you all are able to speak in such a way that you're a blessing to the other members. And of course, that doesn't leave out mothers, but I save them for last because everyone knows that mothers know that they have the ability to lead their little ones to Jesus, and that's their life's calling. From the time that little baby is conceived in the womb, they're praying for that little baby, and in those prayers, leading that infant to God through Christ. As soon as that little one is old enough to understand, they're teaching that little one to fold his hands or hers and pray to Jesus for forgiveness of sins. They're leading them to Christ. When they get a little older, they're showing them how to fight the battle of faith, engage in the war against wickedness. Speak to other moms, young mothers, and know that you're able, you are able to admonish your children and be a blessing to them. Make sure, people of God, that what spills out of you, though, is what filled you. That the words that come out of your mouth are Christ. Christ. The goodness that's in you is Christ. The knowledge that's in you in Christ. You will not be useful to anyone unless you lead them to Jesus Christ and bring them the words of Christ from the Scripture. Christ's mercy, Christ's holiness. All of this may raise some questions. We wouldn't have time for all of the questions, but perhaps one of them would be, if everyone is prophesying, why do you need ministers? Why elders? Why deacons? Well, think that through for a moment and realize that God calls to special offices too. You know the importance of the man behind this pulpit. That's why you need and want another pastor. You know the usefulness and importance of the elders and the deacons. But added to that, not instead of that, all of the people of God are able to do what we've been talking about. Maybe you ask the question, does this make people who really aren't qualified to be counselors, counselors? That is, are, are you all going to be able to give advice to people of God who are in ways of distress and trouble? Well, we all ought to know our limits. And that if someone has need of someone more capable than we are, then we ought to, by the grace of God, direct them to someone who's more capable than we are. But that doesn't mean that you aren't capable of being a blessing to them in some way. And then perhaps you ask the question, does that mean that people are automatically qualified? That just because you're born and raised in the church that you have this ability? And the answer is no. To the extent that you're with Christ and in His Word, to that extent you're able to speak. And I think only of my own experience as a trained pastor who gave his life to the ministry of the Word. The Word that I find most helpful to bring to the people of God in their needs is often the Word that I read from my own devotions that morning. And that has become then a blessing to them. You can do that. This is what I read this morning. This is what was a blessing to me, you say to them. And I trust that God will use it to be a blessing to you. But aside from all of those questions that you may have about this, the passage is clear. And neglect of this activity is very, very serious. You know a man who has a drinking problem. Hypothetical, of course. I have no such knowledge. Let's just imagine. You know a man was abusing alcohol and you don't say anything to him because he ought to know better and other people have said things to him so it goes in your mind and you don't say anything and then five years later you find out that his marriage is breaking up because alcohol loosened the governors and guides in his eyes and made him look at other women besides his wife and loosened his tongue so that he said to his wife things that he ought not say and hurt her. And you knew it. And you didn't admonish him. The stakes are high 
You must not put it all on the minister and the elders. Or you knew a young family with cute little children, but those cute little children were rascals. Probably uncontrolled. They're the ones that the old people are afraid about, knocking them over in the fellowship hall. And though they're cute when they're little rascals, now they're big rascals, and that's not so cute. And you moms didn't say anything to that young mom to help her learn to be a mom. And you men didn't say anything to the dad to encourage him to control those little rascals so that they don't become big rascals. And you say with regret, why didn't I? Let this passage remind you, you're able. And with that ability, you have the calling to do that. But instead of focusing people of God on the dangers of not, think of all of the blessings in the church of Jesus Christ if we live this way. In the first place, the man who has your call and thinks about becoming your pastor will realize he doesn't have to do it all. The elders are active and busy and able, and so is the whole congregation. Ministers are scared to come here, just as they're scared to come to my congregation, Hudsonville. It's so big, and there are so many needs. But when you and I, as members of the church, busy ourselves in this way, well, Moses wasn't asking God for help teaching catechism. Moses cried to God, I can't do it because the people of God came to him with their burdens and cumbrances and strifes. Those are the words that are used in Deuteronomy. He couldn't handle it all. And God gave him assistance in that. And Moses prayed, would to God, all of the people of God could serve in that function. And now that's true. You can, you may, you must. What a blessing if the people of God live that way. Then we all won't think that the only option we have is outside counselors. There's nobody able to help me in my needs except professionally trained counselors. And again, I say, they're useful at times, but they're not your only option. All of the people of God have this ability to do that. And then, though there are many, many other applications, let me just point out the fact that if we understood this, we would be giving to the women in our minds and in our activity, we would be giving to them the ability and by assignment perhaps, all kinds of work to do in the church. Read Romans and see how Paul greets the women and thanks the women for their work in the church. If we understood this, there would be in the church more Phoebes and Tabithas and Dorcases and Miriams and Deborahs and Lydias and Marys and Priscillas and Marthas. And the list of women goes on and on, not because there isn't the position of men in authority and the women under the husband's authority, not because we're opening up the offices in the church to women, that is the special offices, but simply because of this truth. You're all prophets, and God has given to the women a very, very important place in the church. By this time, do we need really to be given confidence? I have this as the third point of the sermon simply because that's the way Paul begins the text. I'm persuaded of you, my brethren. There's something going on there in Paul's mind that required him to write that. And what's going on in the apostle's mind is probably this. The people of God doubt their abilities. They're all nervous. We're young Christians. We're young people. We're women. We're not office bearers. And so Paul underlines the truth in our text. You're full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to be 
admonishing each other with this. I am persuaded of you. Be persuaded of this yourselves. Don't lack confidence. When you see a need in the church, prepare to speak, of course. But then go to speak, to lift them up, to bless them, to encourage them, to give them hope, maybe to warn them. Of course, prepare to speak, but don't hesitate speaking. And then let this all come full circle to the beginning of the sermon. Remember the first part of the book of Romans is what God did for us. And the second part of the book of Romans describes what God does in us. And how that work is conforming us to His image. And that that work of God is performed by His Word. His Word sanctifies us. If we speak the words of Christ to our neighbors, more and more, all of the people of God will be renewed in the image of God's Son, conformed so that they look like Him more and more. Your children, your spouses, your parents, your friends, your neighbors, all of the congregation, God will be using this to sanctify us, to separate us from sin, to devote us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And God in Christ will be honored among us. Oh, people of God, be persuaded of this truth. There's something about you now that wasn't true of you before Christ came to you. And that is, you have goodness and knowledge in you. Now, use that for the blessing of all the other members. That's your calling. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have in many respects been sinfully silent in our lives. So show us the goodness that's in us and knowledge and more and more fill us. May our capacity to hold goodness and knowledge increase and then our activity be busier speaking to others the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Forgive, Father, our weaknesses. There are many. We're sorry for them. We thank Thee for the blood and cross of Christ. We have hope, Father, that Thou wilt use this Word for our good and our edification and our change. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.